like 100,000 fans in a football stadium, this gigantic roar in heaven, a vast multitude that John will compare later to the sands of the seashore that no one can count. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're continuing our study of the Revelation and find ourselves in chapter 19. Having seen the four angels extolling God's righteous judgment exercised on the earth, we turn to verses 7 to 10 today and begin a look at the marriage supper of the Lamb, a literal feast that takes place following the rapture of the church and Jesus' second coming. Take God's word with you this morning, Revelation chapter 19. Last week we turned a corner as uh, we are in the third section of the book, the futuristic section, and John is unfolding for us as it's given to him through Jesus Christ, the next events that are going to take place. The future is before us, and much of it is described here in the 19th chapter, and the future is important to people. That's why Americans will spend billions of dollars this year alone on the occult and the New Age movement, because they are frenzied about the future. Yet the Bible is clear, there's only one who can speak authoritatively about the future, and that is God Himself. Now, Revelation 19 is a familiar chapter, one of the more familiar chapters in all the Bible to a believer. And if you're not familiar with this chapter, you need to be. And I hope in these several occasions as we study the 19th chapter, God will help you to see it and how it applies to your life today. I mean, the accolades of Revelation 19 are really endless because a day is coming when Jesus will first come for the church. We call that the rapture. We'll meet him in the air. But then he will come back with his church to the earth. And when Christ comes back, all doubts will be silenced. All skeptics will have their mouths closed. All of the injustices that we see in this world will be corrected. And all debates, all apologetics will cease because Jesus will literally, physically, actually be here. And once he returns, there'll be no further need to defend his deity or to debate his claims because every eye will see that he is indeed Lord. Now, Revelation 19 pictures for us one of the most dramatic events in all of the Word of God. And if you remember, on the final week of Jesus' public ministry, the disciples asked him about his second coming. They knew little about the rapture. The rapture, the Bible describes it as a mystery, a mysterion, something that was hidden but is now being revealed. And it wasn't until actually the next day that Jesus revealed for them the teaching concerning the rapture. It's in the Old Testament if you have eyes to see it. It's easier for us to see and people like Enoch and others uh, because we live on this side of the cross and we have the full revelation of Scripture. But the second coming is explained all the way through the various prophets. And so they asked Jesus, tell us, when will these things happen? He just said the temple was going to be destroyed and not one stone would stand upon another and that he would come back. Tell us when these things will happen. What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And he elucidates all the way through that 24th chapter, those signs. 
And then he says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Jesus warned us that his second coming would be preceded by a time of great tribulation. And so in chapters 6 through 18, we have been studying a series of 21 judgments where God is bringing tribulation to the earth. And of course, there's no mention of the church beginning in chapter 4 through the 18th chapter because the church is brought up into heaven through an open door. We have been raptured during the tribulation. We will be evaluated and we will be rewarded accordingly for our service. So here in verses 1 through 10 of this 19th chapter, we find the church that is in heaven. And we saw last week God's people singing in heaven as they prepare for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19, beginning now in verse 7, let's read our text where we left off last time. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, people for centuries, of course, have always asked, how will it all end? And that's why the average person is interested in the future. And that's why many non-Christians somehow always want to study the book of Revelation. It helps me to understand why so many people will seek things like astrology and spiritism. In fact, just this week, a church in Atlanta, it's called the Vision Church. They call themselves a progressive congregation. Whenever you see someone use the term, I'm a progressive Christian, just write liberalism over their forehead because they are departing from true orthodoxy. And this particular mega church in Atlanta just added a full-time psychic medium to their staff who claims to be able to commune with the dead. When she was interviewed, I read in the Atlanta Times, uh, this pastor, this associate pastor, this woman pastor, when I asked God why this gift, why not singing, God said, I promised my people eternal life. How will my people know that I've kept my promise if you don't demonstrate your gift? Well, I thought the Bible was enough to know that we have eternal life and that God will keep his promises. But this pastorette Foster argues that her ability as a psychic medium to communicate with the dead to those who have gone on is how God gives assurance. In fact, she quoted in the article James 1.17 that says every good and perfect gift is from above and that this was a gift God had given her. Actually, Deuteronomy chapter 18 teaches this is one of the devil's gifts. Moses wrote, there shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. 
Then the next verse assesses how God views the vision church in Atlanta. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them, the Canaanites, out before you. We don't need a psychic to tell us the future. God has given us his word. Peter calls it a light in a dark place. He calls it a more sure word of prophecy, even more sure and more reliable than the magnificent experience he had on the Mount of the Transfiguration. Well, here in the 19th and 20th chapters, he is recording the key events that will wrap up human history as we know it before he ushers in a brand new heaven and a brand new earth And that place called the New Jerusalem, the Father's house, will literally actually physically come down out of the heaven and become the capital city of that new earth. We're going to study that in the 21st chapter. But here, just to bring you into the immediate context, there is an announcement of sorts that's going on in heaven. And of course, when a wedding is going to take place, it's typically announced. And at this wedding, It is no different, except it's not here comes the bride, it's here comes the groom. And there are a lot of people in heaven at this point, they are praising God, they are worshiping God. In fact, now that Babylon has fallen, they're commanded to rejoice over her. If you look back at chapter 18 and verse 20, let me read it to you. God said, rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. And what we read in the first six verses of chapter 19 is the obedience to that command. The chapter opens after these things. I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Now remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. They're added over a thousand years after the Bible is completed. So don't let them distract you. When you see these three words, after these things, the thoughtful reader would immediately ask, after what things? After what God did in chapters 17 and 18, how God through 10 kings first destroyed religious Babylon, and then how God himself through the final bull judgment destroys economic Babylon. Babylon, which I suggested to you is the city of Rome in light of scripture interpreting scripture, will be the capital city of the Antichrist. It is there that he will rule from. And because of his empire, millions and millions of people will be beheaded. And so here's John, and he hears something like a loud voice, a megalophone. We get our word megaphone from it, a loud voice. And now the worldly music of chapter 18 has been silenced and heaven is filled with praise. And of course, it's a great multitude. We were introduced to this great multitude back in chapter seven. Do you remember it? After these things, I looked and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count. Because God saved 144,000 Jewish men who'd been preaching the gospel throughout the world for seven years, a great multitude of people are saved from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And God had been adding to it this entire time. Why is that? Because God takes no delight in condemnation. God takes no pleasure, he said, in the death of the wicked. Jesus himself said, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. I told you last time, why does Community Bible Church exist? God is very clear why we are to exist. Number one, to exalt the Savior. 
Number two, to evangelize the lost. And number three, to edify the saints. That's why every local church is to exist. Exalt Christ, not some man, not some denominations, not some church's name, to exalt Jesus, to evangelize the lost, and to edify the body of Christ. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Hallelujah, it appears four times in the New Testament, all instances here in the 19th chapter. We saw that the word hallelujah comes from hallel. Hallel is a Hebrew word that means to praise. And yah, part of the tetragrammaton, Yahweh, and it's the word for Lord. And so the word hallelujah literally means praise the Lord. In Greek, it's hallelujah. It's a little bit different. If you look at it, it just looks like it begins with the letter A, unless you looked very carefully and you would see what looked like a backwards apostrophe over the top of the A, and it's a rough breathing mark that produces the aspiration, ha. So in the Greek Bible, it's not hallelujah, it's hallelujah, hallelujah. But some English Bibles read hallelujah because they're following the Latin and the King James came out of the Latin Bible, among other things, there in the British Isles. But it is technically hallelujah. So if you want to brag a little bit to say that you know one word in every language of the world, you can say hallelujah, because that is a universal world wherever you go today. And so here's the first occurrence of it. Hallelujah. I heard a loud voice in a great multitude saying, hallelujah. They are praising God. Now in chapters four and five, they're praising the Lord for the cross, for the blood, for the empty tomb, for the lamb who is risen and resurrected and seated there in heaven. But here they are praising God for a different reason, a reason that we don't often think of, for God's righteous judgment and wrath for his salvation, for his deliverance. Now, the word salvation can literally refer to your being redeemed with the blood of Christ. But very often in the Bible, in both Testaments, salvation is used to describe deliverance from some evil. Hallelujah. Salvation and glory belong to God. Why? Because, here's the reason, his judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot that's Babylon, that's chapters 17 and 18, the capital city of the Antichrist, who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants. We don't often think of praising God for putting down evil, but it is something you will see throughout the Psalms, and it is something that we will do. By the way, this is you in heaven. You are in this scene. We have been raptured at this point. You are witnessing what you are going to be saying here in the future. And they will be praising God because your judgments are true and righteous. And I noted for you last time, there's a change in typeset, isn't there? And that tells you that this is a quotation from the Old Testament, specifically Psalm 19. Psalm 19 opens with general revelation. General revelation is a term theologians use and pastors to describe that information, that revelation that God has given to everyone, no matter where they are born on the face of the earth. The heavens are declaring the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. No man can say, is there a God? Does God exist? 
That's why God devotes one half of one birth to, to, to atheism. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. All men know God exists through the creation, and as Paul will argue, through the conscience within, Gentiles not having the law or law unto themselves, and that they show the work of the law written into their hearts, their conscience defending or accusing them. See, God wrote into your spiritual DNA His law. That's why we know the difference between right and wrong, just and injustice, because we're made in the Imago Dei in the image of God. That's general revelation. But then there's specific revelation, and some of you are here today, some of you are under the sound of my voice hearing specific revelation, namely the Holy Scriptures, because you responded to general revelation. And so he'll go on, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. And then in the next verse, which John quotes from here in the Revelation, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. No one can challenge that God's judgments are true and righteous. And he says that in verse 2, quoting Psalm 19.9, because his judgments are true and righteous, multiplied millions who have been slaughtered and executed by the Antichrist kingdom are praising God in heaven for his judgment upon those lost people. He has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants. Notice again another Old Testament quotation. The quote is from the Song of Moses. This is one of three songs or prayers that Moses makes in the Old Testament. One in Exodus 15 when they crossed at the Red Sea, the other in Psalm 90, and the third right before Moses died. And he's quoting that third one here in Deuteronomy 32. They're praising God because truth and justice has prevailed. Now understand, these people on the earth have reached a point where they are unsavable. No one else is going to be saved at this point. And God's people in a glorified body with absolute righteousness and no vengeance in their heart because vengeance is the Lord's. When they are praising God for His wrath, they are really praising God for His justice that He is a righteous God. Further, verse 3, and a second time, they said, hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. This is not simply the second verse, a little bit louder and a little bit worse. No, they are affirming again. They have heightened the reason for God's praise because of the finality of his judgment. And again, you will see that this is an Old Testament quote. It comes from Isaiah 34 and verse 10. And there in the context, it describes the second coming of the Messiah to the earth. And her smoke rises up, though Babylon has been destroyed, though this earth will someday be incinerated before God makes a new one, her smoke rises up forever and ever. Why? Because the judgment of God is eternal. It never, ever, ever ends. It's sobering to think. And yet here they are praising God for who He is, for all of His attributes. Have you ever just stopped to think about some attribute of God and begun to praise Him for it? Praise Him for His mercy. 
pause and praise him for his grace. Without asking God for anything, praise him sometime for some of the, dim- the dimensions of who we are, he is. And of course, they are inseparable. And not only are they praising them, these, this grand multitude, but notice who's helping to lead it, verse 4, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. Six times the apostle John mentions the 24 elders. This is the last time. The first time we were introduced to them in Revelation 4.4 when a door is opened in heaven. And around the throne were 24 thrones. And on the thrones were 24 elders. And they're in white garments. And they have golden crowns on their head. And we saw that it is very important to identify who these 24 elders are. And we looked and examined a few passages where the number 24 is a representative number of a vast multitude. So who do these 24 represent? The church. They do not represent Israel because Israel is in the midst of the time of Jacob's trouble during this seven years. The purpose of the tribulation that Daniel spoke of, that Jeremiah affirmed, that virtually every Old Testament prophet spoke of in some way, shape, or form, is to bring Israel to repentance. These people are in heaven ever before the tribulation starts. These are not angels, because angels don't sit on thrones. They don't wear crowns. God has given the promise to the church, the body of Christ, that we will reign and rule with him, not to mention they're called elders, and the word elder usually refers to an older man, and angels, of course, don't age. It's an oxymoron to call an angel an elder. Here these 24 elders are, and they are worshiping with the four living creatures, the Zoe. These are not some hideous beasts. The New King James redid it instead of four beasts. It describes them as four living creatures because these are God's cherubim whom we saw earlier in our study of the Revelation who can change their appearance just like an angel can appear as a human and you can entertain them unaware so cherubim can change their appearance. And here they are, they're praising God and they are saying, amen, hallelujah. Now, there's one verse in the Old Testament where amen and hallelujah are bled together. Let me read it to you. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. And let the people say amen, and it's hallelujah, or here interpreted, praise the Lord. Amen is a widely used word by believers. We use it typically at the end of every prayer, though sometimes we don't know what it really means. But when we say amen, we say, I agree. I affirm what you're saying. I was listening to one of the governors this week, and he was protecting human life as he signed a bill, and the people behind him were saying, amen, meaning we stand with you, governor. We agree with you. But sometimes the word amen is found in the beginning of a sentence. We don't see that in our English Bible, but some of you are using other translations here. Your Bible reflects that. For instance, Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, literally, amen, amen. And so when it leads off a verse, 
It's saying that what I'm going to say is absolute truth from someone who has firsthand knowledge, and of course, the Lord Jesus did. And so whenever you see verily, verily, or truly, truly, you're seeing amen, amen, and you should really listen to what they are going to say. Now, the word amen, sometimes you just kind of overflow on the inside and you say amen, and that's okay. And sometimes it's okay to say hallelujah, but don't use it in vain. If you just say it mindlessly, then you're taking the name of the Lord God in vain. I read this week about two Christians on a cruise ship. They were from different countries, and the cruise was not what they expected. And the cruise just turned into one big, drunken, immoral party. So one man from one country walked out on the deck, as did another, and they were reading their Bibles, and they bumped into each other. And they noticed that they had Bibles, but they couldn't communicate because they were from two different languages. And occasionally, one would point and point to a verse, and he'd show it to him in his Bible because the chapter and verse divisions are pretty much the same. And, and brother would, one brother would say amen, and the other brother would show him another verse, and he'd point in, and the other brother would go, hallelujah. <laughs> That's all right. Amen, hallelujah. Those are two words we know in every language. My Hebrew professor tells me that we will speak Hebrew when we get to heaven. I don't know what language we speak. I do know we'll be able to understand each other, even if we speak a multiplicity of languages. And a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to God. And so in case you're a little reluctant to give praise, God commands it. A voice came from the throne. This is not the voice of God the Father or God the Son, for he says, give praise to our God. All you his bondservants, you who fear him, however you're classified by man, the great and the small. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters and the sound of a mighty peals of thunder saying, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Like a hundred thousand fans in a football stadium, this gigantic roar in heaven, a vast multitude that John will compare later to the sands of the seashore that no one can count. And they are giving God praise for his supremacy, that he is victorious, that he is sovereign, that he is now beginning to rule. Hallelujah for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Literally, it says the Lord God omnipotent has begun to reign. Now, wait a minute. I thought God's on his throne this morning. He is but he hasn't yet begun to reign on earth. Jesus taught us to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a prayer for the kingdom, that the Lord God will literally come and rule and reign upon the earth. Right now, for the most part, the Lord Jesus gets the short end of the stick. People use his name in vain, they mock. They make fun of the morality that Christians and even Orthodox Jews espouse. But someday there'll be no making and no mocking. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Isn't that magnificent? Tomorrow we'll look at three truths about this special event, the marriage supper of the Lamb. To listen again to today's study, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 
and asking for program REV54. We are praying for an end to the COVID pandemic and are making plans in light of an anticipated vaccine for our next Search the Scriptures trip to Israel in late September or early October 2021. If you'd like more information as it becomes available, register online at searchthescriptures.org Israel. Tomorrow, part two of the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. Join us then as we search the scriptures.